0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app
1: today. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Hey,
0: everybody. The only former U.S. senator currently on tour tour has been extended. Our 15-city tour has now become our 30-city tour. And the new cities are Santa Cruz, California, Livermore, California, Bethlehem, PA, Cherrytown, New York, Burlington, Vermont, Portland, Maine, Huntington, New York, Glenside, Pennsylvania, Santa Barbara, California, Buffalo, New York, Toronto, Canada, Madison, Wisconsin, Royal Oak, Michigan, Boston, Mass., Red Bank, New Jersey. Uh, You can go to alfranken.com for all the information on how to get tickets. Hope to see you there. Say, we've got a great one today, you know, for a change. David Letterman. This is a repeat. We repeat only the very, very, very few good ones <laughs> that we've done. And this one is really fun. David, of course, the king of late night, 33 years hosting, reinvented the talk show, influenced so many hosts. Conan O'Brien, I know, has talked about how even uh, David's early daytime show was just a revelation to him. Uh, David's also been a good friend. He had uh, Franken and Davis on all the time. Uh, You'll hear about the comedy team that weighs the same. And then later, uh, I'd appear myself. And what I loved about uh, David as a host, as an interviewer, David always had faith that I knew what I was doing. And sometimes I took, you know, a little time developing something. And this was something I could— Sometimes feel that other talk show hosts were nervous if there wasn't a laugh every 30 seconds. Anyway, it always worked out. You'll hear all this, anyway, what I'm saying, in the conversation. And uh, you'll really enjoy it. And now, David Letterman! (music) The best way to learn a language? Immersion living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example... Let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. (laughs) That means means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply.
2: This episode is brought to you by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off-limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
0: I remember a joke you told very early on, I think probably in one of your first, or maybe the first Tonight Show appearance on Carson, where you talked about being a weatherman uh, in, Mm -hmm. in, what, Indianapolis? Indianapolis, yes, sir. WLWI. Right. Channel 15. And, and, And I believe... The joke was about uh, something about uh, as weatherman. I was just one heartbeat away from being anchor. That was I just that that's the joke, right?
3: Uh, yeah, I guess so. I don't, uh, but thank you. I you mean, don't I'm remember that joke, that. huh? I don't remember. it. Wow,
0: that that to me was like a defining joke when I saw
3: that. I, I remember uh, Al. That at one point I had worked at the television station uh, three or four years uh, during and out of college. And I realized uh, if I didn't do something, I was going to spend uh, my adult life in Indianapolis where I was born and raised. So I started looking around in broadcast magazine, they would have uh, ads for, for jobs in uh, the back. And, and I answered an ad for, I think KSTP. Oh, uh, Minneapolis. Minneapolis. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Edina, I believe it was in in dinah. And they were looking for a weatherman. And so um, I sent them a tape and they said, oh, sure, this is fine. Come on up and we'd like to talk to you. So uh, on my day <laughs> off, I flew from Indianapolis to Minneapolis right. and went in and they had me do a live uh, audition or a taped audition in their uh, studio and so forth. Then I talked to the general manager and on and on and on and everything seemed to be fine. And the the money was to a penny exactly what I was making in Indianapolis, so I thought, okay well you know that's that's not a factor that's you know it's at least it's not less and I'm now moving from a position of weekend weatherman, which I was in Indianapolis to full time weatherman, and i I started to think about the the weather uh (laughs) is is different in indianapolis than it is in minneapolis Mm -hmm. and in in a way was that intimidating yes yes it was intimidating (laughs) so i i'm now rolling the facts around same money um people would be uh really really expecting me to know what i was talking about which is intimidating Because I didn't know what I was talking about, even in Indianapolis, and but nobody really cared. A
0: lot of weathermen, a lot of TV weathermen are uh, and women, uh, weather women, are meteorologists.
3: Well, now, sure, now I think somebody (laughs) stepped in and said you can't you can't give this to high schoolers and weather enthusiasts. You have to have licensed meteorologists, and you have to have uh, the the radar. And you have to have team coverage.
0: <laughs> What's funny to me is that you were saying, like, I'm going to get stuck here in Indianapolis as a weatherman. Or it was more about Indianapolis than about being a weatherman. Because you were just perfectly, <laughs> what you're looking at is another weatherman job.
3: Yes, that's, that's right. <laughs> I, I, I knew, I knew I, if I didn't make a move, the inertia, oh, I see. which was, uh, was uh, building up around me, would prevail. So um, on the way uh, home, they're driving me from the station in Edina mm-hmm. b- b- back to the uh, airport. And I see these um, row after row after row, multi-leveled row after row of, of slat-like fences that were along uh, each side of the, uh, the the road that took you to the airfield. And I said to the driver, I said, geez, what what is this uh, mile after mile after mile of uh, the fencing going up? And he said, and this this was in the September, early October. And he said, oh, those are the snow fences, right? And right then, I said to myself, I'll be staying in Indianapolis.
0: You're intimidated <laughs> by having a report on snow or having to live with the snow, which was it?
3: Well, I just I just recognized I wasn't up to the task of having that responsibility. And I, you know, it would take me two or three years to learn the names of the communities and and uh, <laughs> the people who wanted to, you know, lining up wanted the. Uh, I to think you were selling
0: them. yourself short, frankly. I think well, you could have know. handled it, and but nevertheless, whatever you did, you made you made some good choices along the well,
3: way. Well, I don't know. We, we make choices, don't we? Now, now, here is what I've always been curious about you, Al, because uh, you and Tom. I, my rough uh, understanding of your history at the Comedy Store was you guys were there for a time, but left the year before I arrived. That's exactly so right. So I, I only knew of you, but I didn't see you and Tom together on stage at the Comedy Store. Now, did that, in fact, happen?
0: Exactly. You're exactly right. Uh, Franken and Davis had been Comedy Store regulars. In fact, Franny was a cocktail waitress. <laughs> my wife was a cocktail waitress at the Comedy Store. Mm-hmm. And she came east with me when I got the, Tom and I got the job at Saturday Night Live in 1975, and uh, we missed you. I think we it was just barely missed each other. And so Franny came with me, but my sister in law Carla was also a waitress there, and she mm-hmm. told me soon after you arrived, she said, "There's this guy David Letterman who's fantastic."
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So. You you know,
3: well, it's very nice of her. But well, she's was... got
0: really good taste. My sister-in-law. Now,
3: so so, Al, you guys were there for the debut season of SNL.
0: That's right. We were. Yeah. We were there the first meeting in the office. And how did how did you get the gig? We were the only writers who were hired, whom Lorne hadn't met. mm mm-hmm. An agent, a William Morris agent, saw us at the comedy store. Who who was the agent? Herb Carp. Oh, Herb Carp was everyone's <laughs> first agent. He said, you guys, are we. I like your material. You're really good writers. Would you like a job writing? And we said, yeah, but we're not right for any show. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, the only sh- variety, comedy variety shows are, are, are the Tonight Show. We weren't right for that because it was basically jokes. And then some of these Mighty Carson art player sketches, which were kind of corny, right?
3: I think we're purposely so.
0: Yes, yes. And that was very Carson. So we said that we can't do that, and the only other other comedy variety shows that were on were Carol Burnett, which was a really mm-hmm. good show, but we were just wrong generationally for the Carol Burnett show, right? And the other show that was on, comedy variety show, was Sonny and Cher, and that was crap, as you mm-hmm. may remember.
3: Now, what, had the Smothers Brothers come and gone by then? Uh, I think
0: so, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they got canceled because they were so controversial.
3: Do you remember that? Right. Remember
0: that Steve Martin yeah. wrote for them, right?
3: Yeah, that would uh, you uh, guys would have been more uh, attuned, more comfortable there had it had it worked chronologically.
0: Yes, yes, we, but but there was nothing at that point. So Herb <laughs> said, "This is what he said. Well, why don't you just write stuff for a show that you would like to be on mm-hmm. that you would like to see." We wrote a uh, a news show. It was the the, uh, it was a local newscast the night of the day of World War Three. That was one thing we wrote, and we wrote a commercial parody, and we wrote a kind of conceptual film, and then we wrote another. We wrote a sketch that was a parody of Sonny and Cher. And then Lauren hired us based on this package, which was 14 pages long. And the reason I remember this is that there was a period where early on at SNL, and you've read submissions, right? You've read millions of submissions from writers, right? And there Mm -hmm. are some writers who think that the more they write, (laughs) the more likely you are to hire them. Mm -hmm. And how long does it take you to read a submission before you go yes or no? I mean...
3: Well, I, I, uh, I, I share your uh, experience here because the longer it is, you uh, b- even before you take the title page off, you're fatigued. And I, I could usually tell within a page, if they subject, oh, God, uh, submitted yes. a, a top 10 list, I could tell by uh, item number three on the top 10 list, whether we were going to be doing business. Yeah.
0: And mm-hmm. how did this top 10 list get started? Who, how did that start?
3: Well, I uh, years and years ago. I mean, it certainly wasn't a new idea. Every publication in in the world would feature, you know, top ten hamburger recipes, top ten comfortable shoes, on and on and on. But getting back to you and and SNL, so you, you <laughs> well, you, we'll you, get back to the okay. Uh, but here is something th- Those else weren't funny. The top
0: ten hamburger recipes. They were handy hamburger recipes. You had the <laughs> yeah. I mean, what, what was the formula? What worked? On the top ten list, what I mean? Well,
3: I think I think it was uh, it would take something uh, of the news, uh, something of uh, common awareness in American culture, and it would be uh, top ten things Dan Quayle did before he had breakfast, and then it would be like that. So that was the staple, and then you know we did him and did him and did him and did him to the point where nobody really wanted to do them anymore, and, and of course the research said, oh no no. This is the one thing people <laughs> like about the show. Oh.
0: Well, you had to keep doing them.
3: We had to keep doing them, yeah. And, and everybody just was sick of them by about the first year because that's, you know, one a night for 240 shows. Well, that's plenty.
0: I remember you did one for me. Do you remember this? We have a, a business roundtable kind of event every year in Minnesota, and you did one
3: for me. Oh, yeah, me. I do remember that, yeah. And it was yeah.
0: the top 10 bad names of uh corporations in minnesota and it was like second best buy (laughs) and whore mel
3: yeah Yeah. big laughs around the uh, conference yeah it it was
0: huge they couldn't believe i got you first of all but also Mm -hmm. it was they were like there were 10 good jokes
3: Well, we, we had a pretty good run Uh, and then (laughs) like, like everything else, you just kind of like, um, what about top 10 tasty hamburger recipes? You know, you just, well, let me
0: ask you you this. Were there, uh, how many on the staff? How many on the writing staff?
3: Oh, it must've been two, 300.
0: and did you assign like 70 to the top 10 no i I mean uh, every day mm -hmm.
3: a topic would be selected Mm -hmm. we we would have three possibilities uh and and the the one we would choose would be um al franken's top 10 favorite shoes okay and then they would go away the writers and then right before the show we would get together, uh, the head writer and myself and maybe one or two others, and we would uh, kind of uh, collate and just uh, pack together 10. And the, the problem that we always seemed to suffer was, I assumed that the funniest one should be number one. You, you want to have to stop the tape and hose down the audience after number <laughs> one because people are laughing so hard as to now not seem human. And then the other theory was nobody ever hears number 1 because the drum roll and the uh, fanfare explosion from the band subsumes number 1. That's wrong. So that's yeah. wrong. Uh, number number you were 1 right. rarely rarely was the the funniest bunch but it was uh, a a thorn in everyone's side on on the other hand sometimes likely could have been the funniest part of the entire week. <laughs> You are you, um,
0: kind of famously, I think, uh, are tough on yourself in terms of you know uh, reviewing your own own work. I think.
3: Mm. Well, how many people in the world of comedy or show business who seem to be their own champion that you know? There are there are, there are a number there are a number but i i mean when you and tom wanted to get something on snl did you walk into lauren's office and say uh lauren i don't care what you're doing now listen to this it's the funniest thing you'll ever hear
0: that's how we started every pitch (laughs) (laughs) Oh
3: (laughs) well gee i never thought of that
0: now we had read through you know but i mean we'd kick Ideas around, I mean, you know, this, basically the schedule at SNL was Monday, five o'clock meeting with the host. Tuesday, you start writing like at 10 p.m., <laughs> stay up all night, and, you know, you go to read-through on Wednesday, and you have this long read-through.
3: Were the read-throughs fun or frightening, anxiety-ridden, and tedious, or were they fun and delightful? Um, both. I mean, Both. They got
0: longer and longer as I was there. When we first started, there were like I don't know ten writers mm. and seven cast members, right? And cast members, of course, write. And we had Dan Aykroyd wrote a lot, and Chevy wrote when he was there for the first year and a half, and uh, Gilda wrote with Zweibel a lot. And but that's a, that's a limited number of people, and also we worked together, and we it got more and more tedious as the cast grew in size. Mm, and yeah. the, remember, I was there for the first five years from uh, 75 to 80. And I'm, we're talking about me now. This is great. I have David Letterman. And <laughs> but it got, yes, it got, uh, it got a little tougher as, as these things got longer.
3: And, and uh, let me, I'm sorry to jump around here, but when did you and Tom or you start appearing on the show with any regularity? Uh, basically, right from,
0: right from the beginning, Lorne uh, would put us in dress rehearsal. And if in a dress rehearsal, a lot of sketches didn't work and Lorne needed to fill time, he put Franklin and Davis in the last 15 minutes of the air show uh, if he needed the
3: time. Al, that, that's kind of a, a cool thing to have because there's no real pressure and also the opportunity to be heroes. I, You know, it was basically we'd go in the dress
0: we do it and the chances of us getting on were very low mm-hmm. and so yeah i guess it it was a good place to be and uh
3: man it was just exciting that that show yeah. who did you have the most success writing for which which of the original cast members did were you uh, in well, in sync Well how did with, this happen I mean, we got a david Letter, uh, interview with interviewed
0: david letterman okay let's let's move to you in a while, but I'll tell you, Ackroyd, of course, uh, uh-huh. was someone that Tom and I wrote with a lot. And yeah. uh, but you know that was a great friggin' cast. Everybody was great. Oh yeah. Okay. Here, here's something I wanted to ask you about about comic sensibility. Um, you and I both share. We, we're, we we both love Bob and Ray.
3: Oh, Bob and Ray. Good Lord, Bob and Ray.
0: Yeah. And I remember once you said, I th- think you said it was either you or you were quoting your dad, that if someone doesn't like Bob and Ray, you have no time for them.
3: Well, yeah, I, I think that's the case. <laughs> uh, I mean, didn't you feel that way, Al? I mean, well, if, first of all,
0: I don't know how many people listening to this know Bob and Ray. This is These guys were 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, mm-hmm. and they were radio comedians. But Carson right. loved them. You saw him on The Tonight Show a lot. And you saw him on your show a lot. And Tom Davis and I just loved them. And, of course, Chris Elliott is Bob's uh, son.
3: Bob or Ray. No one ever knew the paternity there. (laughs) I I remember
0: uh, Tom and I uh, came on your show, and uh, we did a bit that was very Bob and Ray, the uh, French restaurant. Uh, uh, and uh, Tom played a guy that opened a fancy French restaurant in Shadron, Nebraska. <laughs> <laughs> and I introduced him as Pierre Lafranc. And then he said, well, yeah, uh, you know, it's a pleasure to be on here. I go, P- okay, Pierre, that doesn't, you don't sound like you have a French accent. Oh no, I'm from Shadron. But uh, <laughs> I went to, to a fancy French restaurant and, uh I, you know, took a trip to uh, Houston and, uh, went to this great French restaurant called Abiento du soir And I said, uh-huh, what, what does that mean? And he says, I don't know. So I decided to open a fancy, I loved the food, so I opened a fancy French restaurant in Chadron, and I brought the menu, and I said, okay, now, what does menu actually mean in French? I know it's the French word, what does it mean? And he went, list of food. <laughs> Okay, now that's as Bob and Ray as you can get, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. so <laughs> so about a week after we did this, there was a, Le- a Letterman Show Christmas party, and I see Bob is there, and I went up to him, and I said, you know, Tom and I did this. Oh, he said I saw that piece, and it was great. And I said, well, you know, it was really an homage to you guys. And he said to me, uh-huh, you didn't say so. Oh no, no! It was a joke. It, I see. It really see. was, but I mean it. It was hilarious. I just laughed yeah. so hard. Uh huh. It didn't say so.
3: <laughs> good, Bob. By the way, well, I uh, my acquaintance with Bob and Ray, um, NBC Radio, back in the days when radio was a different kind of thing. They would have a, a service on the weekends called Monitor, and it was NBC Monitor. Oh, yeah. and They would have half-hour shows. They would have hour shows. It would be news updates. It would be interviews. It would be profiles.
0: It's kind of a high, high tone show. Yeah,
3: yeah, and it would be it would be all day Saturday and and maybe Sunday. I don't know, but every hour or so, they would have a visit from Bob and Ray, mm-hmm. and they would do uh, <laughs> several comedy pieces during the day every weekend. And my dad and I became addicted to the little monitor sessions that these guys did. And that was probably the one thing he and I uh, really had in, in common that was where, where we both enjoyed it uh, at the same measure.
0: And so I had an emotional thing for you as well, yeah.
3: Yeah, that's right. So Bob and Ray is always, uh, they were always more than just guys that were funny, but God, were they funny? And, and then I remember they, they worked for uh, Dick Cavett when he had his daytime show and uh Ali Baloo and all of that. Ali Baloo here. Uh, yeah. And winner uh,
0: of eleven diction awards, two of mm-hmm. which are cufflakes.
3: Al, <laughs> <laughs> wow, this, this is a remarkable impression. I
0: I did a lot of listening to Bob and Ray, believe me. Yeah. And for listen, for our my listeners here, what you can go to YouTube and listen to them. And mm-hmm. I, I would, uh, Slow Talkers of America.
3: Oh, the Slow Talkers <laughs> of America. Oh, my goodness. Tell us your name, please. Harlow
2: P. Whitcomb.
0: And where are you from?
4: From
1: <laughs>
4: Glenn's.
0: Falls, New York. New York. And what do you do? I am the president and recording. Secretary.
3: Secretary. The nice thing about the team is they would switch off. One guy would be the stooge one time, and then the other guy would be the stooge the other time, and uh, it always worked.
0: Man, oh man, oh man, oh man, they were they were funny, so
3: right and, and and not worried about uh will this get a laugh, not worried about uh, <laughs> taking their time, uh, but just uh, two guys in suits uh absolutely. Uh, steeped in confidence that their stupidity will out.
0: <laughs> yes. and it was
3: delightful. Chris Elliott. Well, like you said, it was Bob's son, and Chris Elliott was was on our uh, show many many years. And one of the reasons we had uh, any success at all was was Chris Elliott. He did the guy
0: uh, under the stairs. So that was his yeah. character.
3: Yeah, and and, and many <laughs> many other things. But he was uh, just to have the. Genetic influence of Bob or Ray around was was great fun. Yeah, and uh, just to have Chris Elliott, uh,
0: brilliant, brilliant uh, comedian, uh, hilarious on your show, brilliant uh, in in movies and in, in in TV, and like Bob and Ray, uh, has that willingness uh, to to take his time, and and you know you were talking about on your show you you had patience. And, you know, I was a guest on your show a number of times, and I remember if, you know, I would do Leno, right, and I would do some other uh, talk shows. There weren't many at the time, but I sort of remember preparing my stuff that on the other shows it was like, okay, get the, you know, joke in 15 seconds, 30 seconds. And you, I just felt so relaxed with you because I'm a little bit of a slow talker, I think, uh, and I would develop stuff with you and you were absolutely confident that things would work out okay all the time. You were not worried about getting a laugh every 15, 30 seconds.
3: No, it's because of, uh, now that didn't, that didn't hold true across the board, but if I was dealing with somebody like yourself or you and Tom Davis, then, and Andy uh, Andy Kaufman was the other one you had uh consummate confidence that you guys knew what you were doing. And you know, it's like the self-driving car. It was, it was great because not only were you guys great guests, but it was great fun for me as just somebody who, who liked what mm-hmm. you did to watch it unfold. I remember the first thing that I saw you guys do on Saturday night live was you got my attention. And it was so you, it was the Franken and Davis show. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the voiceover uh, announcer, the legendary Don Pardo, Don Pardo, introduced it, and it it, it had uh, to uh, every outward trapping uh, like a big important uh, here here we, <laughs> we got something right yeah. The Frank and David show, and and one week it was sponsored by the Communist Party, working for I, you
0: in Africa, <laughs>
3: <laughs> and I just thought <laughs> these guys. Have nothing but guts, and I—that uh, uh, doubled me over.
0: Yeah, and thanks for having us, on. And it, it, you know, it's unusual for a comedy team to come on because of the,
3: the comedy the, team that
0: weighs the same—that it was—that was one of the favorite things I've ever done. Tom, Tom and I came on your uh, on the show, and we pitched. That's what we wanted to do. We want <laughs> wanted to appear as the comedy team that weighs the same. Yeah, and Tom and I were within about eight pounds of each other. <laughs> and so that we we worked very hard to get exactly the same weight.
3: I had no idea you actually had to to, to, to achieve a steam bath, running, push-ups, sweatpants, anything to get to the same that weight. That was me. That's I had
0: to lose weight, and Tom had to mm-hmm. gain weight. Mm-hmm. And we decided to do this a few weeks before, like three weeks before. And I didn't check in to, with him until like a few days out, and he hadn't gained any weight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, and go. and he, you know, Tom was pretty slender, and he just went, "Well, how do you gain weight? I don't know how to gain weight." Yeah. So it's I go, all "Well, eat you. eat waffles, eat you know." <laughs> and so, well, we got exactly exactly the same weight, and so we did a weigh in. We we wore robes, mm-hmm. and underneath we had uh, speedos. Yeah, and we did a weigh in. We weighed exactly the same, and. You asked us if there are any funny stories from being <laughs> the comedy team ways the same, and well, uh yeah, we just went to uh a state fair, and you know the guy who guesses your weight <laughs> he saw us uh coming, and he couldn't believe it,
2: <laughs>
0: wow, yeah uh, <laughs> that was. That was uh, the kind of joke that you and I like.
3: In a world which one would think there's room for all manner of comedy, would anybody do that or that kind of bit today? The comedy team that weighs the same, you're not going to see that anywhere now, are you?
0: I don't know. I mean, there are a lot of people doing very conceptual comedy. So I'm not not sure about that. But you just don't see many teams. There was another joke in this where you go like, has any other comedy team weighed the same? And I said, well, you know, Stiller and Mira claimed they weighed the same, (laughs) but they never proved it. (laughs) We're going to take a uh, short break. We're with David Letterman, and we'll be right back with David
2: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: We're back with David Letterman. Oh, I know. I I wanted to ask you about uh, something. In uh, in 1985, uh, SNL had kind of... An off year, and uh, I remember getting a call from the TV critic of the Philadelphia Inquirer, and and she said to me, "Why don't you guys do risky material like Letterman does?" Yeah, and I said, "Well, you know, what, what are you talking about? What does Letterman do that you consider risky?" And she said, "Well, the monkey cam."
3: Uh, the monkey cam, yeah, yeah, yeah. And
0: I just said, now, the monkey cam, for my listeners, you had a chimpanzee, you put put a a TV camera attached to his head in a humane way, I mean, it was fine, and he came out on a tricycle, and then he got off the tricycle, and he climbed Mm -hmm. up on the lights, and you would Mm -hmm. cut to his camera... And then cut to the wide.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, tonight, for the first time anywhere, the late night monkey cam mobile unit, Zippy. Paul? Come here, Zippy. <laughs> Zippy. Come on over here and sit down, buddy. Sit down and we'll take a good look at you here. And now come on. Can you come over into this chair? Come on, Zippy. Come on over here, buddy. Alright, go over and see Paul. Go go say hello to Paul. Paul calls Zippy over there. Zippy. <laughs> <laughs> Come here, Zippy.
0: It was hilarious.
3: Yeah. It was it was hilarious um uh, the first time, but like everything else, we, we you know did it a thousand times and uh it was funny the, every time. Well it was funny until uh Thunder Bernhardt was a regular uh, guest on our show because yes. she was uh edgy and provocative and, and amusing and uh so she was like she f- fit our guest requirement perfectly and and uh you know popular and uh, she came out and then we turned the, the monkey cam loose on her and the monkey hopped up in her lap and bit her and uh was that the last I've not, one I've not been not been bitten by a monkey but I don't want to be bitten by a monkey and she reacted like a woman who had been bit by a monkey <laughs> and, and, and she hopped up and down and oh. was shaking her hand and oh. screaming and now the monkey is terrified and so we, we have to get the monkey wrangler out there to subdue the monkey uh, in, in a uh, uh, humane way. And uh, I think that was the end of the monkey cam. But I
0: think that might have been the end of the monkey. Do they? Uh- yeah,
3: no, the monkey still works. Monkey had his own show at Fox for a while. Okay. Brother, <laughs> the poor, poor deer was uh, rightfully upset with us.
0: Well, anyway, I told this critic, that's not risky, that's sure fire.
3: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and i'm explaining this to a tv critic yeah i've just substantiated that yeah <laughs> okay you're, you're exactly right I'm, I'm gonna step out i'll be right back
0: david um hmm uh david has uh, stepped out for a moment um i'm uh, sure he'll be right back uh with with some explanation
3: okay i'm back
4: I'll-
0: well that was quick what was that yeah that was a drink. Well,
3: I had a, I, a couple of days ago, I broke my nose, and now I'm kind of uh, suffering the after effects of that. But that's another podcast.
0: How did you do that? I know it's another uh, podcast. It,
3: it was a, a, a hammer mishap.
0: <laughs> so, are you like handy? Are you a guy who uses a hammer a lot?
3: Yeah. I, uh, uh, during a Writers Guild strike uh, years ago, I took the time off and built my son a tree house. Oh, that was a good
0: thing. See, that's that's the kind of thing people should have been doing and should be doing and are doing during COVID. They're doing stuff like that, learning carpentry.
3: Yeah, yeah, I did that, and then I I put a, another level on it, and and now it's three stories. It's a pretty massive structure, and uh, because when I was a kid, I had a treehouse, and I I loved it, and my friends and I would hide in the treehouse after school, and we kept the Playboy magazines up in the treehouse, and we would look at pictures, and and we, we would be uh, Every now and then we would get a hold of alcohol and take it up to the treehouse. And so I assumed that every kid wants a treehouse. So I built it, <laughs> I had, I built this monstrosity that's now listed in century 21. And uh, <laughs> my son and I, in the years that the treehouse has been up there, which is 20 now or more, he and I spent two nights, two nights in the treehouse. That was it.
0: Well, that is uh, okay. How badly did you break your nose?
3: Uh, enough that I had to excuse myself to take care of an accumulation of snot. (laughs) Okay. All right. (laughs)
0: Uh, You're the first guest who's done that.
3: Well, I was hoping I would make some sort of uh, impression on your audience. Um, Steve Allen.
0: Yeah. I loved Steve Allen. I, I, I know you did. There were a number of things you did that were so... Um, I don't want to say you stole from Steve Allen. You didn't. You didn't. But
3: No, we did. We absolutely <laughs> stole from him. Um, but uh, but I, I, I will say that as much as I love Johnny, when I was a kid watching Steve Allen, uh, there must have been something about what he was doing and the age I was watching that seemed to be just perfect. And we took many, many things from what he used to do and uh god it was uh i think you and i are talking about the same show oh, well like
0: the velcro i mean this is what what you did that was so reminiscent of him uh <laughs> the thing where you put velcro on your chest or wrapped yourself yep. in velcro and yep. were kind of jumped off a uh a trampoline onto a velcro wall right and stuck to it
3: <laughs> yep, that's correct. Uh,
0: and the fizzies uh, too right
3: well, the the fizzies. The uh, uh, I th- I think Steve Allen was uh, it was dunked. I don't know. I, something about tea. He was covered in tea bags, or did I? Anyway, he did something where he was immersed in a, a container of water, and it was either tea. He made his own tea or something, and so from that, uh, I was in a suit of fizzies, which I don't. I don't even know if people know what fizzies are now. I'd. I'm not sure I know what they are now.
0: Well, it's onomatopoeia, or pia, I guess, uh, which is the fizzies are exactly what they sound like. You put them in water, and they fizz, and they're flavored.
3: Oh, they were flavored. That's right. It was a drink. It was like a drink, fizzies. Oh, wait, no, no. I'm sorry. Alka-Seltzer. Oh, that's right. Yes. It was was Alka-Seltzer. Okay. Yeah, it was an early... uh, (laughs) We thought we had a medical breakthrough. uh, so we had the tank of water and the suit of Alka-Seltzer, and Steve O'Donnell, our head writer at the time, was going to try it out in rehearsal. And, <laughs> I and, know Steve. And, and, yeah, very Brilliant. funny kid. Brilliant. Yeah, so he gets in the tank, and there was something about the the fizzy component of the Alka-Seltzer that um, subsumed the oxygen in the that area. And he he nearly suffocated. (laughs) So just just as he's about to lose consciousness, he indicates,
4: get me (laughs) out of
3: this. And and I think when we did it on on the show, I had to have uh, an oxygen mask on.
0: Well, I I would think that, I think it's CO2 that comes off.
3: Yeah, something like that. But it, but it, it, it eliminates the breathable air. Uh, or makes it dense with CO two, so you have nothing to breathe. Yeah,
0: you're breathing. I mean, you're breathing CO two is basically, yeah. and you can't yeah. do that. No, for too long. That. And
3: it's, uh, again, it's like a, everybody's having a good time till the head writer is dead. You
0: know, <laughs> oh my god! That I never, I did not hear that story. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my Lord, that's funny. So speaking of writers, just Jim Downey, let's talk about him. Brilliant, brilliant writer that wrote for you for a number of years, but also, you know, was a S- SNL uh, writer. Uh,
3: Jim Downey, uh, we talk about the world championships of comedy. He also would be on the podium. Uh, and and we, uh, Lorne Michaels, at a certain point in his SNL Um, leadership, decided to step away.
0: Yeah, that was uh, 1980. Uh, The first iteration of the show with Lorne was uh, 75 to 80. And then I left and came back in 85. I was a a Lorne again
3: writer, is what what we called it. So he he was gone. And many of his uh, writers, Jim Downey included, and uh, 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 Tom and Max.
0: Max Pross and Tom Gamble.
3: That's correct, and others came came to our show, which was a what a what a lovely benefit that was. And the uh, the head writer uh, was uh, Jim Downey, and uh, again, just a ten second chat with Jim uh, was maybe the funniest thing that you would experience all week. It was uh, he was and is still delightful. He's, is he still on uh, on staff there? Uh, no, no, uh, Jim
0: left about four or five years ago. Jim and I wrote a lot of the political stuff together, and he always had this. I love this. He said um, that we should write uh, to reward people for knowing stuff, but not punish them for not knowing.
3: Yeah, that's that's uh, pretty high-minded and a and a narrow a narrow line to walk. But God bless him.
0: Well, no, and you can accomplish that. And I I really felt that we that's what we tried to do all the time. Yeah. And uh, also we tried to be uh, Jim's kind of conservative and so we tried to be not partisan. I thought that was that was right for when we did that mm-hmm. in that time. Mm-hmm. Jim wrote probably the sketch that got George W Bush elected <laughs> uh which was that debate. Uh-huh. Uh the Gore Bush debate which unfortunately you know, everybody knew Bush was challenged in terms of language and stuff like that, so you could make fun of that. And strategery, by the way, is Jim right. Downey's invention. That was not something that Bush had actually said.
3: Oh, that's fantastic. So he actually never uttered the word strategery.
0: No, no, no. It was like, can you sum up, <laughs> you know, your campaign in one word? Mm-hmm. It got to Will Farrell and he went, strategery. <laughs> and then to... uh I guess was was Daryl uh, Hammond, was Lockbox. And the, unfortunately, everybody knew kind of the caricature, at least of W, which was kind mm-hmm. of challenged in terms of language and stuff, a little little thick. But not the kind of super silliness of gore. And I love gore. I, I really do. And he's a hero to me, and on climate, and on so many things, so many things. But I I really believe that the whatever that was, 500 and some votes in Florida, that that debate. I mean, there are a lot of things. Anytime it's that close, there's a lot of things. But I do think Downey handed that election to, uh, to George W. Bush with uh, that I
3: sketch. Mean, you you, you reference close elections. You yourself uh, are the veteran of that war. Yeah, I,
0: I won by 312 votes out of... Uh, 2.9 million, and it was a long process, uh, wh- which is why I I knew all along that the outcomes in 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 Georgia and Arizona just they just weren't going to change. And you know why we went through what we went through was just uh, so ridiculous and and uh, sad, really. And and you know we I know you care. A lot about politics. And, uh, and well, you care about our country and you care about democracy.
3: Yeah. And, 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 but I, I, that focus has been fine tuned thanks to my friendship with you. I'm not sure you can tune a focus, but nonetheless, you know what I'm saying.
0: I think you can. I think that was okay. close to being something people say in English. I remember coming on your show and making the distinction between you and me saying, I'm a satirist and you're a clown. I'm a clown. <laughs> A clown,
3: yes, and it. I I hear that and think of that, and it still makes me laugh. Now, <laughs> uh, if we can just jump back to to uh, uh, Jim Downey when he was the head writer, he was in, in charge of hiring people to write on the show, and there was a fellow from Chicago who <clears throat> later went on to uh, be a mainstay on The Simpsons, which which many people from SNL and from our show <clears throat> would do. He would send in those days postcards to Jim with jokes on them, uh hoping to be hired as a writer. So Jim liked him well enough. You probably know the man's name. It escapes me at this Schwartzwelder? Point. Yes, sir, that's him. And uh yeah, so John he, 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 he invited him <laughs> to come to New York City for an interview. So after the show, uh Jim and uh the Mr Schwartzwelder, uh come into Schwartz-Welder. my Schwarzwelder. Schwartzwelder. Oh I'm thinking of a different guy then. Uh, <laughs> yeah Schwartzfelder
0: was horrible as a he's not nf they come up to my
3: office and uh from chicago is uh, smoking a cigarette and he's got a cocktail now this is unusual uh when for a writing interview but nonetheless (laughs) um, that was him yeah and i think he had his feet up on my desk which that was fine so he he leaves big guy too big guy yes yeah. And uh, I don't know what his background was, uh, but uh, Jim Downey loved him. And uh, so we're talking, and he said, well, what what did you think of him? And I said, well, uh, honestly, he, he scared me. <laughs> and and uh, Jim, <laughs> Jim says, okay, well, we can't hire a guy that you're afraid of. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always admired that. <clears throat> but the, the joke that closed the deal for Jim, uh-huh. he sends to Jim on a postcard, and I'm going to use your name, uh, Al Franken's efforts to break every Guinness uh, book of record record uh, got off to a slow start when his recording of White Christmas sold 40 copies. <laughs> I always thought, yep, yep, I should have, I should have not been afraid of him. And he
0: became really a mainstay. He wrote on SNL for a season or two, or co- uh-huh. and really great. But he was a real mainstay at uh, The Simpsons. Really, one yeah. of the big powerhouses there. And uh, yeah, brilliant.
3: Yeah. <laughs> okay, so that's that's what I wanted to add about uh, Jim's uh, tenor. Well, that's our, a great
0: story. story. I never heard that story.
3: Yeah, pretty funny joke.
0: Um, let's see. Worst kind of guest, who are the, you know, you were, how many years did you do? 30-some years, right?
3: Yeah, 30-something, yep. Yeah.
0: After doing, I mean, there must be some, you know, some little commonalities of, uh, I'm now out here with the worst kind of guest. What would that be?
3: Well, in the in the beginning, it was a flip of a coin, because in the beginning, the first couple of years, the first five years, maybe, there were many, many, many people on the show that I knew nothing about. And so anybody that I knew nothing about, I was automatically timid about because I felt like I will only demonstrate my vast ignorance and make a fool of myself with this person I know nothing about. And so it's hard to say that they were bad guests, it's just that they were in the hands of, uh, to, to be flattering, a beginner,
0: yeah. And then this is, remember, this is the late night show. This is after Carson. You're following.
3: Yeah, Carson. that's right. Yeah. We had to follow Johnny Carson. So I'm I'm thinking, well, if you really wanted to see a show, you'd be in bed by now and you would have been watching Johnny for an hour. I, I used to, I used to think that Andy Rooney was a bad guest and uh, you know, he really wasn't a bad guest. He was just Andy Rooney. And and I didn't know what to do with him. And, and I always felt like my responsibility was to try to make something funny out of the conversation, Andy Rooney didn't quite see it that way. He, just, <laughs> uh, he was there. I don't know why he was there, it but was, did he heard. make
0: observations there? Like,
3: yeah, he made observations, and he and I dearly <laughs> loved the guy because I had I had followed his career when he was uh, in the old days on network television. They would actually do hour long documentaries in prime time, and <clears throat> many times Andy Rooney would write and uh, star and host these documentaries. And he, his wry sense of of humor and uh, irony and sarcasm was delightful, irrespective of of the uh, topic. So I had great admiration for him, but I just uh, b- bungled it when he came on. And uh, so it was your fault. It was my clearly my fault. But you know, like you do in show business, I chose to blame him.
0: So did you blackball him from the
3: show? <laughs> no, he, he was very good natured about it. He uh, he came back and. Uh, I remember on the, uh, the CBS show, he and I wrestled, uh, something that would be near and dear to your heart. Um, so he was in the down position and I was in the up position and it was the, you know, okay, wrestle.
0: I, I was a high school wrestler is what David's well, yeah, Medi- I'm, a very I, mediocre I high school wrestler. I
3: didn't, didn't mean to suggest you were in the WWE
0: <laughs> or that I like to wrestle Andy Rooney.
3: Yeah, but who who was it <laughs> you challenged to a fight in a parking garage?
0: Oh, yeah, that was uh, Rich Lowry. Rich Lowry is uh, the editor, publisher, whatever he is, of National Review. And I saw him on C-SPAN, and he said that uh, the Democrats were sissifying politics.
3: Uh-huh.
0: And so I challenged him to a fight. <laughs> I called him up and challenged him to a fight. He was a little puzzled. He said, where would this fight be? And I said, I, in my parking garage. Uh-huh. We both lived in New York at the time. Yeah. And he said, what would the rules be? And I said, well, you know, there are really no rules, but once, until someone gives up. Yeah. And then the guy who gives up has to give like $3,000 to whatever the mm-hmm. other guy wants him to. And he said, can I think about it? and then he called me the next day and said that he had chosen not to
3: now (laughs) you wanted wanted that to happen though right
0: i more or less wanted to shame him for saying democrats are sissifying politics it was so funny like i told my son i think he was like oh 15 maybe Mm -hmm. and so i i told him i did this and he goes oh god dad (laughs) <laughs> and uh <laughs> you know he said what if he said yeah and i said i i'd beat him I, you know i was a wrestler you know i i could beat up rich lowry and sure. so we're watching uh mcneil lairer jim lairer is doing one of a segment with rich lowry and so i went joe 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 there's the guy i was gonna you know fight and he comes <laughs> in and it's it just cuts to jim lairer uh. And he goes, like, <laughs> he goes, like, dad, he's like 70 years old. And <laughs> <laughs> I went, no,
3: no, 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 wait. <laughs> wow. Now, now the, the, the way that would have happened, the two of you would have fought, you would have uh, dominated. And then the two of you would have become best friends for the effort.
0: We've actually became good friends. I said, okay, let's go to lunch. Mm-hmm. So after he said, I, I've cho-, you know, "I've decided not to, I said, okay, let's go to lunch. Although we completely disagree on politics, but I really like him.
3: When you were in Washington, did you ever challenge anyone else to a fight?
0: No. I That's felt that hard. was inappropriate for a senator. Oh, I don't know. Well, you know, I represented the people of Minnesota, and uh, I felt that if I challenged, <laughs> you know, Ted Cruz to a fight.
3: Al, do you think that it, it, it's possible, and I noticed this with uh, people who would come on my old show who had been in public office and now out of public office and were actually able to do more for the good of the populace uh, out of office than they were in? Have you experienced that feeling? I've done
0: uh, some different kinds of stuff that I couldn't have have done in the Senate. That's good, but I I have to admit I uh, I love that job and I and I and I miss it. Yeah. Okay. I haven't covered the. Are, are you going to continue doing uh, my next guest needs no introduction?
3: Yes. Yes. Uh, uh, it's been a lovely experience for me. Uh, I can't speak for the viewers, but it's uh, it's been great. It's been great fun. And it's, um, I enjoy, yeah. really
0: enjoy the show. So there,
3: thank you, Al. It's, it's fun because you get a chance to, w- w- when, with the old show, the interviews were like, you do five minutes, you do four minutes. And, and then I would always run along about five minutes and that, that would be it. But, but here I can, I can just talk all day. And, uh, when that happens, you, at least for me, you, you learn things from these people and every person that I've talked to in this, uh, brief run of shows, have been people from from whom I have learned things about life and uh, their experience. And I find that invaluable. And, and uh, I, I keep thinking back to when I was in college and everybody has an experience like this, that there was a person, maybe two people in the four-year experience, or in my case, depending on who you believe, five years, the, that they said something or did something that that stayed with you and affected the rest of your life, and I I keep wondering if somebody in one of these shows that we have done will say something or do something or allude to something that affects somebody watching in that way. And and uh, and plus, it's just fun. You know, it's just it's nothing but fun. It's not every day. And uh, yeah, I'm enjoying it a great deal.
0: Yeah, it's not the pressure.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's During right. And, I, and show, I, feel, yeah. I feel lucky. Uh, to to be a part of uh, Netflix they've been nothing but supportive and uh, so it's yeah it's it's all been a great experience for us
0: well, what's the name Netflix let me write that Netflix. down
3: Netflix they come they get a little cardboard folder uh, if you order say you want to watch <laughs> um, dumb and dumber uh-huh you call up the operator they'll give you the Netflix number and you tell them and they'll say you want dumber dumber one you want dumber dumber two you want dumber dumber three and you uh, you, you get all three and, uh-huh. they, and still- they send, and-
0: uh, uh, DVDs.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And they will send those out to you They take about mm-hmm. 10 days uh-huh. and then uh, you have a DVD player.
0: Uh, yes, yes, yeah. I do. Mm-hmm.
3: All right. Put them in there. Now be careful when you're finished because those discs, when they come out of that machine are red hot. So remove them with oven mids.
0: Okay. Well, thanks for the tip. Yeah. Enjoy.
3: Oh, i haven't asked you about
0: schaefer paul schaefer okay paul, uh, paul i've known paul since the first year of saturday night live
3: he was uh also an original on saturday night live first first season veteran
0: yeah and a uh, great friend great guy he took an approach which was the sort of showbiz hipster would that mm-hmm. be fair Mm-hmm. yeah <laughs>
3: yeah he loved show business uh, and uh, the the worse the show business, the more he loves it.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's true. And and it's sort of a thing he shares with Marty Short.
3: That's right. And and many people also.
0: <laughs> that's true. Yeah.
3: That is true. When he was a kid living in Thunder Bay, they the parents, Canada, mom it's... and dad, yes, would take him. There was some resort across the border in Minnesota. Maybe you know what it is and they would they would see you know uh, big you know big musical acts uh, and big comedic acts from uh, los angeles and then uh, i think they would also take him to to las vegas when he was a kid so he was uh, steeped in this particular uh, kind of show business early on and i think that was the formative times for him and it stayed with him and a
0: brilliant musician and of course a,
3: a genius just a genius and uh, you know for like 28 years he was the musical director for the uh, uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Orchestra. And uh, I never saw him break a sweat in the 30 years he was working. And he he the, the thing that gratifies me about my friendship with Paul, uh, via the show, he had the opportunity to work with people he loved and admired. And he has those memories and he talks about them uh, regularly. And uh, I feel like, well, geez, I was able to help him do that. Uh, I, that makes me feel good about that relationship.
0: Oh, my God. He worked with so many iconic, everybody. iconic uh, yeah, uh, musicians that came on your show. And very often uh, he would uh, arrange something where, where the, your band would play with them and yeah. or, or people from the band. And it was... Uh, amazing. He, he has
3: great stories about. Uh, one of his favorites was working with James Brown, oh. and he he talks uh, at length and lovingly about the having uh, James on the show and w- what that was, and you know things that uh, James Brown said to him, and that's uh, just great. You know, uh, and and he's he's a guy who collects stories, and the fact yes. that he's got his own uh, encyclopedia of stories makes it even better
0: yeah and and i just mentioned marty short also canadian so we're talking a lot about
3: yeah marty funny short, canadians yeah. Well,
0: yeah. yeah he's kind of like one of your go-to guests that it's always an event when he when he's on
3: he was great it, it, it was great and is great and uh a, a lot of people and and uh would 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 come on and uh, okay I, I i i can only be here seven minutes and i can only be there a minute before showtime and then I have to leave and don't touch me and don't let Dave talk. And Marty Short would come in and Steve Martin was the same way. And they would come in and they would go over with the writers, what they wanted to do. And then they would write it up and then they would rehearse it. And then they would come in and perform it. And they they really committed to being uh, a guest on my show. They, they all they needed to do was sit down in the chair, but they went beyond that. And uh, people loved them, you know, people like that, that would do it. And there were quite a few Bill Murray and Tom Hanks and, uh uh, steve martin and and marty and
0: well steve and marty have a a a two-man show i mean COVID has put uh you know they can't do it now but they were touring with the show brilliant brilliant show but the thing is the work ethic both of them but steve it's crazy
3: yes and i think he uh, to invoke the word genius is limiting what he has accomplished with his career the fact that he has sustained his output and his uh, work and performance at such a, a high level his entire career, uh, I think, puts him in a the, the upper echelons of genius is what I was trying to. No,
0: and and you know I saw their show twice, and I saw it toward the beginning of the run that they were doing, and then I saw it maybe I don't know a year and a half later, uh, it had evolved. And you could tell, you know, I mean, it, it just, I loved it the first time, but uh, somehow it got even funnier, which is hard to do. Uh, but I saw, oh my God, he just works this every night.
3: The combination is great. You know, uh, Marty and, and Steve, they, they really compliment one another. And uh, uh, I saw it once, I was part of it once, and just dumbstruck at what, what they did. And the night that I did the show... I I get to uh, San Antonio, and it's 190 degrees. And I'm walking around San Antonio looking at the uh, Alamo. And I go into the theater, and it's about 3:30. And uh, there's Marty and there's Steve on stage. And you walk out of the blistering heat into the theater, and uh, uh, Marty comes up to me and he says, "Uh, "I think uh, I think Steve may be a little anxious today." And I said, "Oh, good lord, why?" And he said, "Well, um, I don't know why, but he has the hiccups." And they won't go away and he said it it has only happened to him a couple of times in his life and it's a manifestation of some sort of anxiety and i said oh jesus so then i go over and i say hi to steve and sure enough it's and and you think of every now and then you read about a kid in new zealand who's had hiccups for 30 years and you (laughs) think oh god is this are we on the beginning of this so we we do the rehearsal and Steve excuses himself and goes back to the hotel. And and I'm thinking, oh my God. And then I've also heard that this is sometimes happens just before a stroke. So now I'm anxious. And so Marty keeps coming in with updates about Steve. And uh, so at showtime, Steve comes back. Oh, thank God he took a nap and the, the hiccups dissipated <laughs>
0: If you read Steve's book, Born Standing Up, you kind of get the sense that Steve is complicated. (laughs)
3: Uh, But I, you know, uh, of course, everything comes back to me. And I read the book and I thought, Jesus, I would just get on stage at the comedy store for five minutes, try out one joke, and then get my two free drinks and go home. (laughs) Steve Steve knew and, and was writing and was doing and I thought, holy God! If I'd known it was that difficult, I never would have left Indianapolis. I'd be in Minneapolis now, in a diner, doing the weather.
0: I know, but you worked extremely hard. Uh, no, I did. Yes, no. you did.
3: I mean, this is the hardest I've worked in years. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, you, you don't have a, uh, a late night show, and I know that uh, you probably regret. What you did to your family, <laughs> but Harry turned out pretty good, huh?
3: Harry's a uh, fine Harry. Um, much to my surprise, is is quite fond of the academic pursuit. Oh, good. Which, which, yeah, which I never was. So I'm very, very pleased about that.
0: Well, yes, you you uh, that wasn't your your thang, as the kids say. No, not my thing. Not your not thang. thing. But uh, you did okay. It did okay, and I'm looking forward to the next season. What, are you guys? Are you just not going to tape any of these until COVID's over?
3: Or? We did four the last time around. We did two, and then the, uh, the the virus started to spread, so we shut down. And then there were we found ways to uh, safely do the remaining two in that little pod of shows, uh, but it, it, logistically it was was difficult as it has been for everyone beyond logistics, by the way.
0: Here's something I've thought of. Are there more people who don't need an introduction coming into existence than the pace of your interviews? Because That's a good question. (laughs) (laughs) Is that a question you've asked yourself?
3: Well, we're constantly in touch with the Bureau of Weights and Measures. And they told us that there are now... (laughs) <laughs> about 40 people left who actually don't need an <laughs> that's about 40. Uh, you know you never know what's going to happen but right around 40 is the number they have oh that, that
0: that's enough and then by the time you get through them there'll be some others
3: well you don't know i mean it the number goes up if you count the royal family uh but i i don't like to put them in. i think that throws the index off wow that
0: would be a good interview though the queen really? the queen
3: well yeah the queen i'll take all of the queen we can get for god's sakes yes
0: i know what i wanted to ask you mm-hmm. uh i have always considered you a broadcaster mm-hmm. as opposed distinct from a late night host and you're both you're both but uh i felt that uh you were an important broadcaster and mm-hmm. i think one of the best examples of that was nine eleven. I remember I went down to the site, and I remember just a couple days after, and I remember a firefighter who lost some brethren said to me, Letterman has to come back. He actually said this to me. Hmm. I, I can't remember how long it was before you did, but you did it. And it was just a very brilliant healing uh perfectly pitched uh moment in broadcasting history i think and well thank you yeah and it was really important and it, it was perfect and i wish i could remember to, you know exactly what you said and i don't remember actually but i just remember that
3: well it's it's nice of you to remember the moment i don't remember exactly what i said it was one of the circumstances where, if I was going to come back and continue what I had been doing, I knew that this was uh desperately necessary, and what was needed was was some sort of how do you address it? do you address it positively do you do you address it regrettably do you uh, have a serious or sinister tone about it or an uplifting tone and i I think it was just one of those moments where I was able to uh, satisfy the expectation. Uh, And I I don't know what more to tell you about it than that. Welcome to The uh, Late Show. Uh, This is our first show uh, on the air since uh, New York and Washington uh, were attacked. And uh, I I need to ask your uh, patience and and indulgence here because uh, I want to say a few things. And uh, believe me, sadly, I'm not going to be saying anything new and in the past week uh, others have said what I will be saying here tonight far more eloquently than I'm equipped to, to do. But uh, if we are going to continue to do shows, um, I just need to hear myself talk for a couple of minutes. And so um, that, that's what I'm going to do here. Um, it's, it's terribly sad here in, in New York City. Uh, we, we've lost 5,000 fellow New Yorkers and you, you can feel it. You can feel it. You can see it. It's terribly sad, terribly, terribly sad. Uh, I, I think we went back on the air the Monday after the the Tuesday attack. You know, Howard Stern, by the way, was on the air through the whole thing. And uh, he sent me, I asked him to send me the tapes of that day. And it's it's fascinating because in the beginning, it's, it's Howard Stern doing his Howard Stern show and, oh, something's happened downtown. And And there was a half an hour of speculating uh, what had happened downtown. And then you you have the whole history of it there on his show. And I'm surprised somebody hasn't, and maybe somebody has taken it and used that as the core of a a documentary. Uh, But I I, I always thought that, and I didn't know this and didn't even think about this till years and and years later. And he was nice enough to send me the whole show. And uh, I mean, there's a perspective that, is was a living breathing account of of that day Uh, and i think that would make a fascinating show
0: yeah well i mean he is a a fascinating broadcaster himself and has
3: he's he's wonderful isn't he i mean you do you have a friendship with uh howard
0: yeah yeah not a close friendship but i really like him i admire you know the transition he's made and um no he's also uh, an amazing broadcaster himself
3: yes and and a, a nice fellow
0: yep yep okay speaking of that uh, you've been incredibly nice to me in so many ways and I appreciate that
3: I uh, I have to thank you uh, because of you al this um, election cycle I was a I knew what to do and I was able to do it and I remember it's because of you going way back on Martha's Vineyard years ago at a, uh, at a fundraiser in somebody's backyard. And we got to do that again and again, different places. So I was not afraid when people would ask me if, if I could participate in things like that. So I did uh, a few things like that for this election cycle and found it really, really gratifying. So uh, my interest uh, and activity in politics is largely due to our friendship. So thank you for that. All right, man.
0: Thank you. Um, this is, uh, I think it's going to be a a really good one for a change.
3: I think this is going to be an eight-part thing. <laughs> anyway,
0: so um, uh, listen. Thank you. We'll, thank you, Al. We'll edit out. Uh, we'll, we'll edit this to make you seem funny. Thank you. Okay.
3: You get your work cut out for you there, my friend.
0: <laughs> well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey.
2: The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians joined me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and tried to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus.
4: Once upon a beat.